Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5? We will be finishing up this section in chapter 5 this morning. A section that runs from verses 22 to 33. A section that we are calling God's design for a spirit-filled marriage. And in particular, it focuses in on the roles of men and women in marriage, the God-given roles. This is not my thing. This is not my opinion. This is I'm, it's not me saying, girls, here's what I think you ought to do. And guys, look, I want you to do this. These are God's principles. He created marriage. He has the right to tell us how we are to function in it. And so in verses 22 to 24, we looked at God's command to wives. And then in verses 25 through 33, we have been looking at God's command to husbands. And let's read those verses once again. Starting in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his, of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this whole passage where God is giving his command to husbands is really built on the first four words of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. All that comes after that is Paul's way of defining that. What does it mean for us husbands to love our wives the way God wants us to? Well, as we've already been looking at, we're first of all to love them willingly, first part of verse 25. We're to love them sacrificially, the latter part of verse 25 through 27. We're to love them practically, verse 28 to the first part of verse 29. We are fourthly to love them unconditionally, the latter part of verse 29. And this morning, and the one we've saved for today, we are to love them permanently. And you'll find that in verses 30 to 32. Let's read them again, where Paul said, For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Of course, the key word there is the word joined in verse 31. As we've already pointed out, it's a word that means to be glued or cemented together. And again, in the mind of God, marriage was always intended by him to be permanent. A lifelong commitment that only death or adultery could break. Now, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus himself quotes what Paul just quoted in verse 31, that's Genesis 2, verse 24. When Jesus said the same thing, for this reason the man shall leave 
his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds a little more insight into what God intended when he said that. In Mark 10, starting in verse 8, he said, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let not man separate. The Greek word karizo, when it's used in the context of marriage, always means divorce, not a temporary separation. In other words, Jesus said, when God glues two people together in marriage, man better not try to divorce them or separate them. Now, again, the whole passage is built on Paul's command to husbands to love their wives. Not that wives are not supposed to love their husbands, but we've already said there is no direct command to wives in the New Testament to love their husbands. The husband represents Christ, and therefore he is to love his wife with God's love, and she reflects that love back to him in a sense. Just like Jesus, you know, the husband represents Jesus in marriage, and uh, the woman represents the church. Well, the Bible says we love Jesus because he first loved us. He loved us first, we reciprocated, we responded to that love. And a wife will respond to her husband's love as, as he begins to love her as God has commanded. But the idea is that we as husbands are commanded to love our wives. The Greek word there is agape. And that is a Greek word that always is used of God's love in the New Testament. God's love is selfless and sacrificial. And God from the very beginning intended that marriage would always be built on that kind of a foundation. Or as some have called it, Agape love is the mortar that binds the marriage together. It's what God uses to cement the two together. God's love, selfless, sacrificial love. And there was a time in our nation's history where we as a people took marriage very seriously and we as a culture, loved, I'm talking about the church now, loved one another, especially in marriage, husbands loving their wives and so on, with God's love. And because of it, the church enjoyed tremendous success in marriage for many, many years. Back in the mid-1800s, there was only one divorce for every 1,000 marriages in this country, Christian marriages. But as we, over the last, well, mostly over the last 40 or 50 years, as the church has moved away from so much of what God has said in His Word, and primarily right here with regard to marriage, as more and more Christians stopped basing their marriages on God's love and started basing them more on self-love, well, guess what? Divorce began to rise exponentially in this country among Christians, Christian couples, divorcing each other for almost any dumb reason today. Now, this is nothing new because back in Jesus' day and, of course, Paul's day, uh, the same thing was going on. If you remember in Matthew 19, Jesus was dealing with the subject of marriage. The Pharisees came to him and um, they said to him, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Listen. For just any reason. See, the rabbis were teaching that pretty much you could divorce your wife for any flimsy reason. Like we've talked about this before, you're going to laugh. It's true. She burned your eggs, put too much salt in the food, was seen talking to another man, or disrespected her mother-in-law. Boom, you could cut her loose, send her on her way. Any dumb reason. You see, they had the same, they had come to the same point in their society back then as we have come to in our society today. They no longer had, and we no longer have, a high view of marriage. We no longer have a high view of marriage. Oh, we still make a big deal about the wedding, right? I mean, weddings, the wedding industry is going big guns. I mean, most people still get married in the church. 
They stand before God and friends, and they vow to each other, promising to be faithful to one another in good times and in bad until death do they part. They rent a hall. They invite their friends and family to celebrate this wonderful thing called marriage. But really, folks, it's a formality for most people because they really don't intend. They really, for the most part, I don't think, that most people intend to remain faithful to their spouse if the opportunity presents itself to have an affair. And when they say, until death do we part, what they really mean is, until divorce do we part. And as we've already pointed out, all of this is being fueled by the rampant self-love that the Bible predicted would characterize people in the last days, the time just prior to Christ's return. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, he talked about the fact that there would be an epidemic of self-love that would infiltrate society, and the church has been, it's, it's come into the church as well, where people would love themselves above all else. But the message of self-love is being preached everywhere today, and Hollywood, of course, is leading the way, as they always lead the way for every godless agenda and philosophy that we see. Not that everyone in Hollywood embraces some of these things, but for the most part we see it. I remember reading an article by author and uh, commentator Bob Just, who himself was a son of divorced parents. He said, and I quote, he said, when Hollywood started the mass drumbeat for easy divorce, their message was simple. Marriage is about happiness. And so if you're not happy, if you're in a bad marriage, it's better to divorce your spouse and seek a good marriage because then you'll be happy. And of course, Hollywood just really ran with this and just was really pushing that whole idea that it's all about your happiness. It's all about your fulfillment. They made self the focus. Bob goes on to say, Marriage is not really about happiness. He said, I made that statement on HBO's Bill Maurer show and practically got booed out of the studio by the shocked audience. Many decades of lies about marriage made my statement too hard to hear. After all, after all says the pop culture, if marriage is not about your spouse making you happy, then why get married? He said, it's actually a great question. If only we dared to really ask it. I believe the traditional culture, in other words, our parents' generation and so on, has the answer. You get married to learn what real love is by way of your spouse and your children, if you have any. But, and here's the clincher, he said, if and when you do discover what real love is for your spouse, you will also find real happiness and joy inside yourself, the kind no one can take away from you, end quote. Well, I don't know if Bob's a Christian, but he's definitely picking up on something Jesus said. Jesus said that the way to find happiness was not through a direct pursuit. The way to find happiness was to lay down your life for others, to be a servant of everyone. He said this in John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And the context was this. Greater love is no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. The idea is if you want to find happiness... You serve others, and you will find an awesome thing happening. You will find happiness as a byproduct of how you are giving yourself away in service to others. Those people that pursue happiness and fulfillment as a direct pursuit, whether it's through materialism or sexual pleasure or any one of a number of things, our society is waving in front of people saying, look, if you only had this or did this or went there or whatever it might be, you're going to be happy. We've got a whole advertising industry based on that philosophy. But those people who pursue happiness 
as a direct pursuit out of selfish endeavors are the most unhappy people in our society. Now, there are two kinds of love operating in a Christian marriage. There is self-love and there is God's love or agape love. Self-love is rooted in our fallen nature. And of course, God's love, agape love, is rooted in our new nature. And these two loves are constantly competing in our lives for control. Why? Because they're connected to our two natures, and they're always fighting with each other for dominance. That's why Paul said in Galatians, the spirit and the flesh are at constant war with each other because the spirit of God wants to control you, and the flesh wants to dominate you. And guess what? We get to choose who wins. But we don't have to choose the right one. When Christians walk in the Spirit, they will allow God's love to dominate their lives and fill their marriage and make them something beautiful for God's glory. However, when couples, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, choose rather to walk in self-love, put themselves first and their own personal happiness, well, their marriage will inevitably end in divorce. But again, if self-love is the focus and driving force in your life, well, when things get tough in marriage, divorce becomes a good thing because you see it as liberation from unhappiness and slavery. People say, you know, once again, I'm free to do whatever I want. The ball and chains have been cast off. I'm free. I can do what I want, go where I want, you know. And, and, you know, and so in our culture, divorce becomes something to celebrate. See, this is even... Uh, spawned a new line of uh, gift cards. And I went on my computer yesterday uh, to see what some of the companies were offering. You can find these cards in your stores. You can find them online. They're called Happy Divorce Cards. These two came from Hallmark. Let me read them to you. Think of your former marriage as a record album. It was full of music, both happy and sad. But what's important now is you, the recently released hot new single. You're going to be at the top of the charts. Happy divorce. Or getting divorced can be very healthy. Watch how it improves your circulation. Best of luck. You know, folks, we have become a generation that is glorifying one of the most painful and devastating experiences any person or family can experience, and that's divorce. And I realize that sometimes divorce is inevitable, in cases of abuse and or continual unfaithfulness by one spouse. But even then, divorce should never be treated as a happy thing. It is the tearing apart of two lives that God has joined together as one, regardless of how happy a face you try to put on it. I think it's always a sad thing when to watch something as beautiful as marriage die. I have had the blessing of officiating at dozens of marriages over the years, and they always start off with such joy and hope, and it's such a beautiful thing to see and such a celebration. I have also had the pain of watching many of those same marriages slowly die a horrible death. Most of the time, it isn't because of, of any one thing in particular, but it's the result of a kind of a slow separation of, the, of two people who, at some point, begin to drift apart until they really no longer even know each other. I think this was captured poignantly in the words of one author. Let me read to you what he said, or how he described this, and I quote. He said, their wedding picture mocked them from the mantle, these two whose minds no longer touched each other. 
They live with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering ram nor words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unraveled that tangle ball of string called self, and as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid their searching from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. He lay beside her snoring like a hibernating bear, unaware of her winter. Once after they had made love, he wanted to tell her how afraid he was of dying, but fearing to show his naked soul, he spoke only of her beauty. She took a course in modern art, trying to find herself in color splashed on a canvas, complaining to other women about men who are insensitive. He, well, he climbed into a tomb called the office, wrapped his mind in a shroud of papers, and buried himself in customers. Slowly the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate. Recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For you see, when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, nor when fiery bodies lose their heat, but it lies exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall. It can no longer scale. End quote. So how can a couple keep this from happening to their marriage? Well, let me give you three things. These are by no means exhaustive. There's no doubt many other things you could do. But let me give you three things that I see. First of all, and we've already touched on this somewhat, but first of all, you need to realize that your marriage must be built on God's love, not on self-love. Realize your marriage must be built on God's love, not self-love. You know, the Bible defines true love, God's love, as a commitment, not a feeling. You know, feelings come and go. They ebb and flow depending on the circumstances that you find yourself in. If the circumstances are positive, there's a lot of feelings, things are great, you're happy. If the circumstances are negative, if one is sick or a child is sick or somebody loses their job in the marriage, I mean, negative circumstances, painful circumstances will always impact feelings. If you build your marriage on feelings, your marriage is doomed. It must be built on a commitment. Because sometimes the passion is flowing, isn't it? And your relationship with your spouse feels like you're both still on your honeymoon. And at other times, your relationship feels kind of cold and formal, you know, like partners in a business arrangement instead of two people in love. But listen, when your passion for one another cools, that's not the time to chuck the marriage and find somebody new. That's the time to fall back on the commitment that you made to each other when you first stood before God and family and friends and pledged to love each other. And again, love is what? A commitment. When you pledge to commit yourselves to each other, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for the rest of your lives, even when you don't feel like it. You know, I've used this illustration before. Let me use it again. Marriage is like a ship that a man and a woman enter into as they embark on a journey together for the rest of their lives. A journey that will include sunshine and storms and both smooth sailing and rough seas. And the key is commitment, folks. It's the commitment you have made to each other when you first married each other, when you first pledged your love. It's the commitment, not feelings, that will bind you together and allow you to weather the storms, which will come. Anyone who tells you a good marriage never suffers storms is not being honest with you or is not married. Even in good marriages, storms will come. 
Conflict will arise. But if you handle it properly and you fall back on the commitment that you made to each other, you're going to weather those storms and they will pass. And they will give way to clear skies and smooth sailing for a while until the next storm comes. But I'll tell you what, the more you love each other sacrificially with the commitment instead of feelings, although feelings are part of it, don't get me wrong, but they're not everything. The commitment is the most important thing. You will work through those storms. And and the more you apply that principle, the less you're going to see storms arising. And when they do, they'll be handled quickly. Allow me to use this idea or this thought to segue into Acts chapter 27, which technically has nothing to do with marriage. And yet the lessons that we learn from that chapter have everything to do with marriage. You remember the story how that Paul had been falsely accused by the Jews of being a rabble-rouser. And he, he was falsely imprisoned there in Caesarea for a couple of years where he jumped through legal hoops. And finally he had had enough and said, look, I'm a Roman citizen, enough of this garbage, I'm not playing games anymore, I have a right to appeal my case to Caesar, and to Caesar I want to go. And so the Roman magistrates there in Judea had no other choice but to send Paul to Caesar. Now he's on a Roman ship headed for Rome. And you remember the story. It was late in the season. It was hurricane season. And so all of a sudden, this hurricane called Eurachlodon hits. It was a fierce storm. In fact, it threw them up and down. I mean, it tossed them back and forth uh, across the Adriatic Sea or the Aegean Sea for two weeks. Can you imagine for two weeks being thrown back and forth, waves, they threw out everything they could to lighten the load, the cargo, the tackle. I mean, they had pretty much by this time given up all hope of surviving. And then one night an angel appears to Paul and says to him, look, don't be afraid. God says the ship is going to be a complete loss, but he is going to spare the life of every person on board. Now, Paul shared that with the captain of the ship and the Roman centurion in charge of the prisoners. But as he was sharing this information with the captain and the Roman centurion, some of the ship's crew secretly went to the prow of the ship and began to lower the skiff or the lifeboat over the side. We read about this in Acts 27, verses 30 to 32, where it says, As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff or the lifeboat into the sea, under pretense of putting anchors out from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and let the skiff fall off into the sea. Now, Paul wasn't conducting a marriage seminar at that moment. I mean, his comments were really not directed to marriage at all. But as I read that story, God impressed upon my heart that the same kind of commitment that had to go into those men working together if they wanted to survive this storm at sea, it's the same kind of commitment that two people, husband and wife, have to put into their marriage if they're going to survive the marital storms that come their way. See, those people needed to work together. If they started bailing on each other, nobody was going to live. And I know, just the Holy Spirit just kind of impressed upon me. That is the same kind of commitment that we need to have toward each other in our marriages. If we're going to survive the storm, or the storms, I should say, because there's going to be numerous storms that come at us over the course of our married lives. And there are times in marriage, and maybe some of you right now, as you sit here this morning, 
are in one of those times. You know, when the marital storm is raging, the wind is howling, you know, the seas are churning. And you say to yourself, you know what, I've had it. I don't need this. I'm jumping ship, man. I'm getting out of here. I'm tired of this whole deal. I don't have to put up with this, right? I'm not going to take this marriage one more day. But know this, if you do that, first of all, and most importantly, you're going to be disobeying God. You made a vow to God when you stood before him on your wedding day that you were going to stay next to this person for better or worse, sickness, health, whatever it took, whatever storms came, you were going to remain by their side and you were going to weather these storms together. Now you're going to bail. And listen to me. God takes our promises or our vows very seriously. That's why Jesus said don't make vows. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if you make a vow, understand that God is going to hold you to it. People say, well, yeah, but God's a forgiving God. He'll forgive me. Well, God is a forgiving God. But there's still consequences for our disobedience, right? And one of the greatest consequences is going to be that you're going to bail on this marriage and you're not going to give God time to really work a miracle to show you that He is able to take what you think is a hopeless mess and turn it into something so beautiful you can't even recognize it anymore. You know, we need to stop looking at things through the eyes of flesh and start looking at things through the eyes of faith. One of the big problems that we face as Christians is we tend to see problems as problems. Well, how am I supposed to see it? As opportunities. See, we tend to see problems as, you know, sometimes hopeless situations that just weaken our faith when actually there are opportunities that God has led our way for him to show himself strong to us. You think when David stood before that nine and a half foot Philistine giant, that wasn't a problem for a for a what, 14-year-old kid looking at this big giant, we would look at that from the eyes of flesh and say, that's a problem. How's a 14-year-old skinny runt kid going to take down a nine and a half foot Philistine warrior? Because there's no problem. It's an opportunity for me to show you that I'm a giant killer. No matter how big the problem is, I can bring it down. When Moses and the children of Israel stood before the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was, was fast on their heels, from a human perspective, wow, that's a big problem. God says, not a problem. It's an opportunity for me to show you I can make a way where there is no way. I can deliver you when there's no hope. When you go through a marital storm, and maybe it's a prolonged storm, like Paul and the guys were on the you know, Adriatic Sea. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, and you know what? You've pretty much given up all hope. That's the time that God really can do his best work. When you realize that your strength has come to an end, and you cry out to him in desperation, God, if you don't do something here, this thing is over with. And you humble yourself. And you confess your sins and your faults. Know this, God is able and willing to work a great miracle. You know, someone has written a book with the title, Good Marriages Take Time. Bad Marriages Take More Time. So true, isn't it? And listen to again to the Apostle's warning. If you jump ship, no one, no one will make it. You know what? I want you to stop and think of your children if you have any. If you're contemplating divorce this morning, I want you to stop and think of your kids. How is this going to affect them? And believe me when I tell you, it will affect them. And boy, I've heard more than one father say, well, it's not going to affect them. I'll be a better father now. I'll be happy. I'll be able to really... Come on, man, you're kidding yourself. You will never be a better father outside of the house than you would be tucking them in every night, reading them bedtime stories, being there when they come in after they hurt themselves, teaching them lessons about life. You can't do that from across the 
town or across the state or across the country. You're kidding yourself. And many children suffer, many children of divorce suffer the emotional damage for the rest of their lives, even to the point of suffering one or more failed marriages themselves when they get older. Look, I'm not saying it won't take hard work, sacrifice, and a lot of prayer to weather the storm and to see God work things out, but as the Bible said, with our God, there is nothing impossible. And again, that's not to say that sometimes divorce is not necessary in cases of continued adultery or abuse. It's just to say that too many Christian couples follow the example of the world, really, and rush into divorce when things get tough instead of really hanging in there. And, and I know there's probably some here this morning who are saying to yourself, you know, well, I haven't jumped ship. I've only lowered the lifeboat over the side. Uh, you know, I'm going to give it two more weeks or three more months or one more year. But let me say this to you. If you keep an escape option open in your mind, I guarantee you, you will end up using it. If you keep thinking about divorce, you will end up divorced. Because no marriage can survive a strong marital storm as long as you've got one foot in the lifeboat contemplating jumping ship. Get rid of the lifeboat. Cut the ropes. Jettison this deal. Don't have an escape route. Stop planning your escape. Tell yourself divorce is not an option. I committed to this person for the rest of my life. And you know what? I'm going to trust that God is going to honor my desire to see our marriage work, and my obedience to doing what God has told me to do. And you know what? I'm going to give God time to work. It may not happen next week or next month or next year, but God is going to work. Because it says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, God said. Which means all the power of God is at your disposal to make your marriage work because God wants your marriage to work. He wants to show it off as a trophy of His grace. So number one, Build your marriage on God's love, which is a commitment, and not on self-love. Secondly, if you don't want your marriage to die a slow, painful death, then treat each other the way God has commanded. And for this, I drop down to verse 33, where Paul said, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you know what Paul has just done? He has just summarized this entire passage. And he has put his finger on the essential difference, emotional difference between men and women. God has made us different, of course. He's wired us differently. When Paul said, husbands, your responsibility is to love your wife, the word, of course, is agape. We've already been looking at, well, what does that mean, Paul? Well, you're to love her willingly, and you're to love her sacrificially, and you're to love her practically. You're to love her unconditionally, and you're to love her permanently. She needs to know you're not going to bail on her when times get tough, or when she gains a little weight, or when something else happens. You're, you're going to be by her side. And then he says to the women and wives, make sure that you respect your husbands. See, that's the difference between men and women. Essentially, emotionally, I'm talking about. Do you know that a woman more than anything else, needs to feel loved by her husband. She needs to feel cherished, appreciated. She needs to feel that, you know what, the honeymoon is not over. You continue to treat her like somebody that you are so in love with, you can't wait to come home to. Somebody that you are so thankful to God that he has given you, this woman. And you express it to her in tangible ways. 
You know, you don't take her for granted. You see that she's tired. You, you, you know, you, you come home and you take her out to eat. Or you do good little acts of kindness that let her know that she's appreciated. A woman above all else needs to feel loved by her husband, and a husband above all else needs to feel respected by his wife. More than men need to feel loved by their wives, they need to feel respected. If a man is not respected by his wife, girls, the way we are wired is very hard for us to warm up to you. Because God has wired us in such a way that we need to feel that you respect us. Not that you always agree with us, but that you respect us. Because when you respect your husband, if he is a halfway decent guy, because of that respect, he's going to want to try harder to be a good leader. He's not going to want to make dumb decisions that impact you and the kids because you respect his leadership. You're in his corner. You're on his side. And what that does is it causes him to want to love you all the more. The problem is, often there's a stalemate. Christian wives will go, well, when my husband started loving me like Christ loves the church, I'll respect him. And he goes, well, when she starts respecting me, then I'll start loving her like Christ loves the church. So now we have this stalemate. Who's going to break the stalemate and go first? Look in the mirror. You're the only one who can go first. I know we have talked in the past how really the husband, because he represents Christ, should initiate the act. He should go first. Some guys won't, girls. So what are you going to do? Wait forever for him to start loving you like Christ loves the church? You start respecting him, not because he deserves it necessarily, but because God has told you, respect him. But he's a blockhead. Respect him. But he makes dumb decisions. Respect him. You respect him. You do what I've told you to do. I'll work on that, bozo. I'll make him. What I want him to be. You know, Daniel found himself, you know, in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a despot. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Not because he deserved Daniel's respect as a godly man, because he wasn't a godly man. He was a tyrant, a dictator. But Daniel respected the office because he knew that God raises up kings and brings them down. God places people in authority. And Daniel realized God has put this man in authority and God has put us here and I'm going to respect this guy. Even if I don't respect him as a person, I can respect the office. And I believe because Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar and treated him the way God wanted, Nebuchadnezzar was finally brought to the Lord. I think we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because of what, how Daniel treated him. I think of Lucifer in the book of Jude when Michael the archangel was contending or arguing with, Mo, uh, with Lucifer over the body of Moses. What did Michael say? Didn't call him any names, didn't bring against him a railing accusation, but said, I'll let the Lord rebuke you. Why? Because Lucifer was the top angel in heaven. God had placed him in authority over all the other angels. And even though he had become corrupt and his leadership was nothing to be respected from a godly point of view, uh, Michael said, look, God has put you over me and I... I'm going to respect the office. Godliness respects authority, even if the authority is corrupt. doesn't mean that godliness allows authority that's corrupt to tell us to do corrupt things. We draw the line and obey God rather than men. But I don't have to agree with my president to respect the office and pray for him. There's a lot of people that we work for, we really can't respect as individuals. We can respect their title. We can serve them as unto the Lord. So, girls, if you're married to a guy that absolutely refuses to love you like Christ loves the church, you respect him. And let God begin to work in his heart.
But guys, if you are a godly man and you want to do God's will, then you know what? You start loving your wives like Christ loves the church. And I guarantee you, folks, if husbands and wives just did that, those two little things, and obeyed God and treated each other the way God has commanded, I guarantee you most marital problems would evaporate overnight. And finally and quickly, first of all, build your marriage on God's love, not self-love. Secondly, treat each other the way God has commanded. And thirdly, surround yourselves with strong Christians who will encourage you to obey God and will not encourage you to do what you want to do or give into the flesh. Author Ed Wheat, in his book, Love Life for Every Married Couple, told of how a woman, a Christian woman, came to him one day who was having marital difficulties, and this is what she said, and I quote, I had to take a stand on this matter of outside influence. Everyone has been anxious to give me advice about my marriage. I refuse to discuss it with people who hold an unbiblical viewpoint, or people who try to turn me against my husband, or people who make me feel sorry for myself and encourage weakness in me. I can't afford to be around worldly friends anymore. I want to be with people who will stand with me and support me when I might falter, end quote. God bless that woman. God bless her. Because she doesn't want to surround herself with people who will tell her what she wants to hear in the flesh. She wants to surround herself with godly, spirit-filled people who will hold her accountable and encourage her to obey God even if she doesn't feel like it. We need to do that today. Folks, you're always going to be able to find somebody at work or a friend or even a Christian who will tell you what you want to hear. Why you should cut this guy loose or cut this gal loose and find somebody new. You know, in the world, just, they just celebrate that. Online yesterday, I saw on one of these websites about divorce, other paraphernalia like T-shirts. One shirt said, I lost 300 pounds overnight. I divorced him. Another one, I lost 300 pounds overnight. I divorced her. See, this is the world's mentality, okay? It makes light of this stuff. And you'll always be able to find somebody who will tell you it's all about your happiness. But I know one thing. It's about God's glory and doing what God has encouraged or has commanded. Yes, God encourages us to obey, but they're not suggestions, they're commandments. God always blesses obedience. Obedience is not always easy, but it's always right. And let me just say this. The world says, and we often bind to the philosophy, the mindset, and we're almost done. Just give me two more minutes. The world often says, well, I'll obey when I feel like it. I've heard Christians say this, basically. Well, I know what God has said, but you know what? When He makes me feel like doing it, when the Holy Spirit works in me and I want to do it, then I'll do it, I'll obey. You know what the Bible says? You obey, and God will bring the feelings. You love your enemies. Oh, I don't, I don't have any feelings to do that. Love them anyways. And when you find that you show somebody kindness who is an enemy, suddenly the Holy Spirit's going to give you feelings for that person. You're going to start praying for them. Same is true in marriage. You don't have to feel like treating your wife like Christ treat, treats us. Or girls, you don't have to feel like treating your husband with respect. You do it anyways. And you know what? As you begin to do what God has said, that little ember that is just about gone out, that will just spell the, the complete death of your marriage. As you begin to obey God, the Holy Spirit get, begins to blow on that little ember. And it begins to glow hotter and hotter. And then a little flame comes up and then it begins to spread. 
and you will find that the romance and the heat that once characterized your marriage will start to come back. If you will obey God, because God said, if you obey me, the feelings will come. And I want to just say one more thing before we leave this section. I want to go back and look at the last, uh, but I want to look at verses 30 to 32 again, where Paul said, as he's talking about how husbands ought to love their wives, he then says, For we are members of his body, Jesus' body, and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32 is what I want you to see. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wow! Did he just throw us a curveball? You see, the word mystery, there's a Greek word that means something that was hidden in the past, but now God has revealed. Something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but now God has revealed to the church. What is that? That way back in Genesis 2, verse 24, and other places, when God first ordained marriage and created it, it was supposed to represent the relationship between Christ and His church. Is our, our relationship with Christ permanent? By that I mean, do you have to measure up every day to earn the right to stay connected to Christ? No. When you gave your heart to Him, He entered into a permanent, and in this case, an eternal relationship with us. And He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, but Lord, I blow it so much. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Lord, you know, I, I do so many things. I will never leave you nor forsake you. My love for you is unconditional. You can count on me staying by your side no matter what you go through. No matter how badly you blow it, I will always be there. I have made a commitment to you, and that commitment is permanent. And now... He says to us, guys and gals, will you operate your marriage under that same principle? Your marriage is not eternal. We know that. But will you love each other and work through problems and stay married together for the rest of your lives? Unless, of course, there is abuse or continued adultery. Obviously, sometimes it's just not possible to stay married. But so many marriages are ending for the dumbest reasons. You know, a little storm hits. Couples get a little antsy. I don't want to put up with this. You know, it's hard living with another person. But that's called marriage, folks. It's hard. I can't always do what I want. I feel like, you know, I can't do what I want to do. Welcome to marriage. <laughs> when you got married, you were saying, I'm no longer going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what we want to do. And oftentimes what she or what he wants to do, sacrificial love. Marriage is not easy. In fact, I'll go as far as to say, as I've said before, I don't think God ever intended marriage for unredeemed people. He created marriage before the fall. Marriage was supposed to be, was supposed to be this incredible union of harmony and love that sin corrupted. And marriage has been knocked down, but it hasn't been knocked out. And in Christ... It could become again what God intended it. But you have to walk in the Spirit. And may God give us the grace to do that because I believe God wants all of our marriages to not only survive but to thrive. I think that He could use marriage today to save people because people are so unhappy. If people see a marriage that is really being lived in the Spirit, 
Wow. What a witness for Christ. Because you can say, look, it isn't us. It's Jesus. I believe God can save and wants to save people by the way we live our lives together as married couples. So may God help us. May the Holy Spirit control us. And may God be glorified through us. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible thing you have created called marriage. And Lord, forgive us for interjecting into it self-love, for thinking that marriage is all about me and my happiness, for looking at my spouse as someone whose whole purpose for existing is to make me happy and to fill my needs, when it's just the opposite. I am to lift them above myself. I am to put their needs first. And Father, we pray that you'd give us grace and fill us with your love. That, Lord, we might love each other, that we might love you, we might love our, even our enemies with your love. That the world might know that we're different. And, Father, we just pray that you would just touch couples right now. Marriage is under an incredible attack. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would give us grace to realize we are not fighting against each other. It's the devil who is coming against our marriages. And we need to come together as one to pray against the real enemy instead of allowing him to turn us against each other. So, Lord, thank you for your grace. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we just give you our marriages, Lord, and pray that you would give us the grace to be all that you want us to be, that you might do in and through us all that you want to do. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.